My favorite part of Les Mis is unquestionably when uh, Hugh Jackman, of course, his name is Jean Valjean. Don't you just love that? Not near as much as I do, but I loved it. Jean Valjean. That, my favorite part of the movie or Broadway show is when he is let out of prison and he goes in French society and can find no place uh, to call home. No one will welcome him as a former uh, prisoner. But finally, he comes to a, a monastery or a church, and the priest and the nuns there, they welcome him, and they invite him into their home, if you will. And he comes in, and uh, he is starving, and they feed him, and they clothe him. They give him a place to lay his head at night. However, he wakes up early, and he goes to the church's silver, these silver expensive cups. And as I'm watching this, I'm going, no, 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 don't do that. Those are the only people who've exhibited grace to you, and he did. He went, and he took a bag, and he filled up all those cups of silver, and he rushed out of the church, and he stole from the church. Well, the next scene has the French police bringing him back into the church. They caught him. And all they needed was a testimony of the priest to say, yes, that is him. Yes, he is stolen from our church. But the exact opposite happened. If you've seen the movie or the Broadway production, you know what happens next. The priest looks at him and says, oh, yes, he is my friend, and I gave him those silver cups. Oh, and by the way, in your haste and your running away, you forgot these candlesticks. And he gives him these expensive candlesticks. And Jean Valjean is forever changed because he met grace. He had never experienced forgiveness. And it caused him to have a deep transformation with Christ. And throughout the movie, his life is forever marked by this distinguishing characteristic of grace. And it's never more seen than in his relationship with Inspector Javert. He is Russell Crowe. And in that movie or in that, that show, it, every time he has a chance to um, repay and retaliate against this inspector whose life consists of making Valjean's life miserable, every time he does, he chooses to do what that priest did to him, and he chooses not to extract a pound of flesh, but to forgive and to exhibit grace. You know, that's what God's people do. We forgive. The greatest characteristic and attribute of a child of God is to take on that salient mark of God Himself, and that is when people don't deserve it, we offer to them mercy, grace, and compassion. In your Bibles today, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6, and it is a phenomenal passage of Scripture in the Old Testament that displays for us how mortal, sinful humanity can go into the presence of God and we can meet God in worship, and instead of Him just zapping us and annihilating us, He chooses to forgive us, transform us, and cause us then to live a life of grace and mercy, compassion, and peace. So in your Bibles, I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm going to start at, at verse 1 and just kind of bring us up to date, and then we'll read through verse 8 or verse 7. And our message is on discipleship. This foundational stone of a local New Testament church is discipleship. We looked last week at worship, and what does worship entail? 
Well, it's not an event. It's not a place that we go to. Worship is 24-7. It's where we live out our Christian life daily and worship to God in the way that we live our lives. And then when we come together on a Sunday, we are corporately, collectively, we are gathered together, and we have that moment that we had a moment ago where we are just worshiping God, and we just sense His presence in the collective body of believers. And so now we're going to look at the next just crown jewel, if you will, of a radiant church, and that is discipleship. When our humanity meets His divinity, and God chooses to forgive us and change us, and we live a life that represents that change. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. These are massive, angelic creatures. With two wings he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah says in this vision, he, he said that the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, here's our text today, verse 5. So Isaiah said, Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord, the God of the armies of heaven. Then one of the seraphim, flew to me, having in his hand a live coal or a hot stone, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity or your guilt is taken away, and your sin is purged, it is removed, it is forgiven. Aren't you glad today? that in this amazing depiction of this vision of holy, awesome, righteous, powerful God, when Isaiah goes into his presence, he sees God in his holiness, and conversely or subsequently, he sees himself in his sinfulness. And by the way, that is always the true mark of worship. When we enter into the presence of God and we see Him for His grandeur and His greatness and His glory, we see Him manifested in His Word, we see Him in the fellowship of His people, we see Him in the songs that we sing, and as we see Him, we are so moved. I mean, in our very ethos, our very being, our very essence, we are, we are moved when we see Him, and immediately we see ourselves and we say, oh God, forgive me for I am a sinful man. I am a sinful woman. God, have mercy on me. Aren't you glad that in that moment, God does not give us what we deserve? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad God does not say, you sinful reprobate, out of my picture, out of my mind forever, and, and cast us away? No, God doesn't do that. Because when we come to Him in brokenness and asking to, to know Him and, and be forgiven by Him, he ministers grace to us. And to me, that is the salient characteristic 
of a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are grace-filled, not law, legalistic, pharisaical-bound people. No, we are grace-filled. We have a life that has been transformed, and now we live that life in transforming grace to others. Well, last week we looked at this radiant church motif, and what does it mean? We're trying to be a radiant church that worships God upwardly, studies His Word and discipleship inwardly, and then it manifests itself outwardly in missions and evangelism. I read an email this week from one of our Bible Life teachers. I had to laugh because it, it was funny. And it was also a little bit convicting. In, in the email, the, the teacher writes to his, his class and he says, you know, Brother Danny keeps on talking about us being a radiant church or becoming a radiant church. And he says, you know, I watched 30 of our church members go to the home of one of our other church members in need, and they have transformed that home. They have done an amazing work there, free of charge. They just did it out of the benevolence and, and the graciousness of their heart. And, and he kind of rebuked me. He said, we are not becoming a radiant church. We are a radiant church. I'll take that rebuke anytime. I, I agree with him. We are becoming that church. We are that church that worships that studies God's Word deeply, and then from there we go out and we actuate it. We put it into action, and it changes our lives, and it changes the lives of the people we come in contact with. So today, I'm going to walk you through these three or four verses, and then next week, we're going to pick up verse 8, and we're going to go through the remainder of Isaiah chapter 6 as we're studying what it means to be a radiant church. What are the salient characteristics of that church and of those people of God? Point number one is confession. Woe is me. Isaiah, when he had this vision of God in his holy palatial temple, his heavenly abode, he sees God and he, the train of his robe filled the temple. There he saw in, in this vision of God and his majesty and his holiness, and he saw these massive angelic creatures who are flying around the throne of God and they're shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah's response to that was, woe. <laughs> woe, woe is me. This is an interesting word. It literally means a heartfelt expression of grief or despair. It is when mortal man sees the almighty, powerful God and he responds with not this arrogance, this hubris, this flippancy. No, he responds with this brokenness, with this self-revelation, and God has revealed who he really is, and he goes, oh God, have mercy on me. You know, as I study the Scriptures, and every time mortal man encounters holy God, they have the same experience that Isaiah had. Let me give you some examples. First of all, number one is Job. In the book of Job, it says, I believe it's chapter 42, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, God, and I, now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself. Well, what does that mean? Woe. It means, God, I see you for who you are, and I see me for who I am. And God, there is a chasm. There is a great gulf that exists between who you are, how awesome you are, and how sinful I am. And Job says, as a result, I repented. I turned away from my sin in dust and in ashes. Peter in Luke, read this one. Simon Peter saw it. 
He fell down at Jesus' knees and he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And then I'll give you one more in Revelation chapter 1, and this is the Apostle John. In the great revelation of the apocalypse, of the end of the world, as God has revealed it to John. And John says, I saw him, and when I saw him, I told him what a great person I really am. And I gave God a few instructions on how he ought to rule the heavens, you know. And I told God how things ought to really be, you know. No, no, no. That is not what happens when you and I really encounter God in worship. We don't brag on us. We don't tell God and the world how wonderful we are. We tell God how awesome He is and how desperately we need Him. And so John says, I fell at His feet as a dead man. But God laid His right hand on me and He said to me, Don't be afraid. (laughs) Uh, Seraphim, go get the coal. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6, in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am undone. The word literally means to be cut off or to be destroyed. And this is not some sadistic, some kind of looking for pain kind of event or experience. No, this is what real worship and discipleship look like, biblically. Now, in our cultural, tepid, anemic, watered-down Christianity... Let me say that again. In our modern or postmodern, tepid, anemic, diluted, cultural Christianity, we have left this whole concept of a holy God and an unholy people. In fact, some of you are squirming like a wormin in the church today. You're going, well, how dare you tell me that I'm a sinner? How dare you tell me that I've done something wrong? I didn't say that. I never said that about you. That's what God says about you, that you are sinful, that you are undone, that you are broken, and that you have a desperate chasm and a need in your life And God says, that's true, that's the way it is, and I love you so much that I will forgive you, I will restore you, I will give you peace, I will give you purpose, I will give you joy, I will give you a reason for living. That is the grace of God. He loves us. Oh, how God loves us. And in order for us to experience His love, all we have to do is to admit, admit that we're wrong, that we're broken, and we need Him. It's interesting to me that Isaiah says, I'm an undone, broken man, and I'm a man of unclean lips. You know, of all the sins that the prophet had, why did he touch on this one sin? That's very revealing. Because what comes out of our lips always mirrors what's in our hearts. You say, well, that was very profound, Pastor. Where did you get that? I got that from Jesus. Jesus said, you brood of vipers, you den of snakes. How can you, being evil, speak good things? You said, Jesus said those words? Who did he say such harsh, polemical words to? He told it to the religious crowd. 
who thought that they had their act together, and the, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, they all said, ah, oh, we don't need you, Jesus. We don't need your life and your miracles and your substitutionary death because we are sons of Abraham, and we got our act together, and we don't need anybody's help, especially yours. And Jesus says, you're mistaken. You need me, but you don't accept me, you brood of vipers, for out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. Ooh, that's powerful. What you say is a mirror, a reflection of your heart. In James 1.26, it's interesting that the half-brother of our Lord says, if anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he is deceived in his own heart. This one's religion is useless. I like the way one biblical commentator said, when believers have a true experience with the Lord, it does not make them proud. Rather, it humbles and it breaks them. End of quote. Well, the prophet had this encounter with God. He sees God in His holiness, in His majesty. And then, in turn, he sees himself. And the spotlight that God puts on Isaiah is the sin of his lips. And the prophet, he's human. And he has said some things, and he has thought some things that were not right in the presence of God. And he says, oh, God, I'm so sorry. And he said, and I'm guilty. And so are they. They were all guilty, God, of sinning against you in one way or another. One writer put it this way, he said, Isaiah is not self-absorbed, he is ministry-absorbed. He, he has the people, the congregation of God uh, on his heart. This idea of being in relationship with God and going deeper with him in discipleship, it begins in a moment in time. It begins when you see God and you are transformed by his grace. And after that happens, that is called salvation. That is called the Spirit of God coming in you. And you are a new man, a new woman, a new adolescent, a new child, a new teenager. Whenever you come to faith in God for the very first time and, and God reveals himself to you and your sin to you and he, he embraces you and he forgives you, I mean, you, you're overwhelmed by the grace of God. That's when you enter into that relationship. Now, after that, the way the relationship deepens and the way you grow in your faith is that you daily have this encounter with God. You, you worship Him daily. You enter into that, I call it the quiet time or the devotional time where you daily, and this is what I do, church, every single day. I go before the Lord in the morning. And I'm not very much a morning person, but I know me, and i got to get my day started out right. And I, I praise God, I worship Him, and right after that I say, oh, and Lord, please forgive me, because, and God reveals things to me that I said or that I thought that I did that I did not do, and so I ask you, Lord, to please forgive me. And that's how I grow in this it's simple, basic rudiments of the Christian faith. Adore Him, and then confess our sins to Him. The psalmist said in Psalm 15, 1 and 2, he asks, then he answers, who may come into God's presence? Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Well, it's he who walks uprightly and works righteousness. Don't miss this part. And he speaks. He speaks the truth uh, in his heart. 
So number one is confession. And number two, yes, aren't you glad, is forgiveness. Anytime, anytime, every time, you and I confess our sins to God, God will forgive. You say, well, I just disagree with that because I'm telling you I've done so many bad things, I've said so many crazy things, and I've thought so many amazing, wicked things that there is no way. If I were to go into the presence of a holy God and I were to say, God, I am so sorry, would you forgive me? There is no way that God would forgive me. And I just want to tell you, you are mistaken. You're wrong because God hears the prayers of the unrighteous when they come to him and say, oh God, have mercy upon my soul. God will pardon. God will forgive. God is for you. God really does love you. And when you come to him broken as you are, and you say, oh God, please, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? God's not going to shazam zap you with a heavenly boat. He's not going to take out his heavenly rifle and shoot you dead. Nope. What he's going to do is he's going to reach down to you and say, I love you. I forgive you. I cleanse you. Now let's get going and start serving me. That's the kind of God that he is. Awesome God that he is. Oh, your love never fails. It never gives up. Never runs out. Oh, me. I don't know what that song did for you, but boy, it brought tears to my eyes. Because there have been so many times in my life God could have said, Dude, what is your problem? You've just worn me out. Go on. I'm going to go. I'm going to start over with somebody else. God never does that. He is so compassionate and he's so incredibly patient. So verse 6, we see this heavenly response to Isaiah's heartfelt plea of confession. One of those massive seraphim flies to the altar in the heavenly vision. And with the tongs of the altar, he takes a live hot coal. Now, in, in Ezekiel and in Revelation, we see something similar to this. For example, in Ezekiel it says, Then he spoke to the man clothed with linen, and he said, Go in among the wheels under the cherub. Fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim. Okay, so there's this altar with coals of fire, and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. And in Revelation it says, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. I don't understand everything that's going on here in this vision and this altar, whether it's a, an altar uh, representing the sacrifice and forgiveness or it's this incense altar, whatever it is. The seraphim fly to it, flies to it, takes this hot coal, and in this vision, he touches Isaiah's lips with it. And you say, well, why didn't he touch his ear? Why didn't he touch his head? Why didn't he touch his hand? Why did he touch his lips? Because it was with his lips that he had sinned against God. And so God always addresses us directly, precisely, perfectly where we are and what we've done against him. So here this wonderful moment of forgiveness. And I'm as I was reading this, I thought about the symbolism in what these coals 
what they might represent. And, and for some reason in my mind, I thought about baptism. And I found out in my research I wasn't alone because one writer put it a lot better than I could, but this is what he said. These were not magical coals, neither are people baptized in magical water. Rather, they figuratively, metaphorically, symbolically represent the miraculous accomplishment of God's gracious purification and forgiveness, end of quote. Everybody in Israel needed to do what the prophet did. And everybody today needs to experience what the prophet experienced, and that was the cleansing, the purification of his sins. In verse 7, let's look at it. Oh, man. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Now watch this, the most important part of the sermon. Don't miss this. Your guilt, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. These conspicuous, formidable, impregnable barriers were obliterated in a moment. All that stood between a holy God and a sinful man, all of his guilt, all of his iniquity, all of his sin and his unrighteousness and all the things that he had done in a moment of saying, oh God, woe is me, I am so sorry. In a moment, in a moment, he was forgiven. What an awesome God. You say, well, I, I sure wish I knew a God like that. I wish that God was still alive and that God could do something like that for me. Well, look no further. In fact, I want to say something religiously and certainly politically incorrect. This is the only religion that you will find it. A grace-based, not works-based, a grace-based, God, please forgive me, and then God literally forgives you. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say that we have no sin, well, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, homo legeo, say the same thing about our sin as God says about our sin. In other words, I'm sorry, Lord, I blew it. Would you please forgive me? Well, then God's faithful. God's just. He forgives us of our sins, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And then I thought about Lance Armstrong when I read this next verse this week. He who covers his sins does not prosper. You don't win when you cover your sin. People find you out, your family finds you out, your city finds you out, and you just get yourself in a heap of mess. But when you confess and forsake those sins, you have the mercy of God. Man, I thought about the cyclist. And I, and I watched, and I was riveted this week by his testimony. In that part with Oprah Winfrey, when he went the first and the only time when he, when he teared up, he said these words. He said, when I saw that my own son was defending my integrity, that's when it broke me because I had no integrity. So I looked at my son and I said, quit defending me. You know what? I'm excited for him. I mean, I, 
I know us religious folk, we get ex- well, Here's what we think. Well, that sinful reprobate, he got just exactly what he deserved, and he just, he just can go on to hell as far as I'm concerned. Oh, Lance Armstrong, ride your bike on into Hades, boy. No. I hope he steers that bike right into the presence of God and says, God, I want you to forgive me. I've asked the people to forgive me. Now, most importantly, God, I want you to forgive me. I want you to cleanse me. And I want y'all to know something right here on the authority of the Word of God based on the grace of God. If that man says, God, I'm sorry, God will forgive him. He will forgive him. That's That's grace. That's what this whole religion is based on. Not on our works, but on His work, His authority, His person. And when we come and say, I'm sorry, God says, thank you for telling me what I already know, and so now I'm going to forgive you. This writer puts it so powerfully. Listen to this. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. And then the dynamic equivalent for that Philip Bliss song is Laura Story's song. When she says, Atoning sacrifice, keeper of this life. Hallelujah. You are Savior. Beginning and the end. Come on now. Catch this, forgiver of my sin, by your mercy, you have saved us. Oh, and Jesus, you are stronger, more than any other, hallelujah, what a Savior. Jesus, you are higher, my soul's deepest desire, hallelujah. You are Savior. This biblical text that we've looked at today reveals so much to us about theology, God, and anthropology, if you will, man or humanity. The jewel in this text that you cannot miss is this. The barriers are obliterated. The dam is burst. Only... When you come to him and say, you are awesome. You are awesome. All I have to do is look around me. In this amazing thing that we call the universe, planet Earth. In this incredible book that you have given us for my very eyes to read. And your dear son, who shed his blood for me. All I can say is, I'm sorry. Please, oh great, awesome Merciful God, have mercy on me. Have you ever done that? No, really, have you ever done that and meant that? If you haven't, then this message is for you. It is for you who come today and say, God, I am sorry. Would you forgive me? And God cleanses and he forgives you. Like I said a moment ago, every day, I come into God's presence this way and I ask Him to forgive me and to cleanse me because I want to not walk at a guilty distance with God. I just want to walk intimately and closely with Him. 
when I was preparing this sermon, I kept thinking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I thought about his famous quote when he said in the book, The Cost of Discipleship, and he wrote these words. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And die. He did. Bonhoeffer reminds me so much of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 31 and Galatians 2, 20, when he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Dietrich was a child prodigy. Many of you know his story, and you've read Eric Metaxas' fine book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he, his dad was the most well-known, known, respected doctor in all of Berlin. His brother split atoms with Albert Einstein. How would you like to have him as a brother? What does your brother do? He splits atoms with Albert Einstein. He's another genius. And what does your other brother do? Well, he's an attorney with Lufthansa Air. And what do you do? What will you do, Dietrich? You're as gifted as all your brothers. What will you do? And he said, I think I'll be a preacher. And they're like, what? Why would you waste your life on being a theologian when you can have all this in the world? And he said, no, God's calling me to be a preacher of the gospel. And at age 21, at age 21, he'd already finished all of his coursework and got his Ph.D. in theology at the University of Berlin. And then reading his life, and I was thinking about his life this week, you're talking about discipleship. This guy, Mark Cook, he, he did exactly what you're talking about. He got a group of young men around him, and he mentored them, and he poured his life into those young pastors. And he was a professor of theology, and, and he taught and he equipped the future pastors and missionaries of Germany. But that's not why we know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We know him mostly by the fact that he saw the evil of Hitler and he participated in an assassination plot to kill Adolf Hitler. That's why Metaxas' book reads, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, subtitle reads, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. He was incarcerated just on the eve of the end of World War II, just a few days from it being over, they assassinated him. They killed him. The Gestapo did. But before he died, he said these words, and I'm going to give them to you in their context, and then we're done. Listen to these words. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion, Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. It may be the death of one Martin Luther 
who had to leave the monastery and go into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The, the death of the old man and his call. End of quote. I invite you today to taste and see the goodness and the mercy of God. Taste and see while Jean Valjean had the wherewithal and the spiritual bandwidth to be able to forgive such a cruel inspector as Javert. Find out why and how when you come into his presence and you are so radically changed. You, you and your sinfulness meet God in his holiness and his righteousness and God imputes his righteousness into you and you are cleansed and you are forgiven and you are changed. Oh, that you would experience that today. You say, how? How do I experience that? What do I need to do? What money do I need to give? What sacrifice must I give? No, you missed it. You missed it. Here's what you have to do. You have to say, God, I don't have anything. I am just a beggarly sinner who has violated almost all of your commandments, and I know what I deserve, but I'm just asking you, please don't give me that. Would you forgive me? I give my life to you. What say you, God? I'm going to tell you what God says. God says, strike up the band, angels. We're going to have a party. We're going to have a party. This guy, this gal is coming to me and I will cleanse them. I will save them. And when they die, they're going to meet me face to face and we're going to celebrate. We're going to be in heaven forever. I'm going to tell you something, guys. What a deal. <laughs> what a deal. So that's what I mean when I say discipleship. Walking with God in His grace, a transformed life. So with your heads bowed, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and we're going to say a brief prayer. And we're going to invite those of you that are here today who would say, I so know that I need God. My heart is beating violently in my chest. I've never experienced this before. What could this be? Could this be God calling me? Me? It could be, friend. It, it really could be. What will you do? How will you respond? You don't need some cute phraseology, some magical potion, hocus pocus. No, all you need to do is say, God, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Jesus, I am yours. And when you do that, and you mean that, oh, my friend, what a life. God's transforming, redeeming grace. He will save you. He will change you. And you will not change. I mean... Overnight, every habit, everything that you struggle with may not go away just instantaneously. But listen to me carefully. That's where discipleship begins. That's where you grow and that's where you are mentored by other believers. You don't have to do this on your own. Can I say that again? You do not have to do this on your own. God will help you. God will bring people in your life who will help you. God will do everything for you except say yes for you. Others of you are here today. You know the Lord. You want to walk deep with God. And there are barriers. There are things in your life that you have constructed. And you know what they are. God knows what they are. 
And God invites you today to say, Lord, I am sorry. Woe is me, for I am unclean. And would you today, would you today quit walking with God at this guilty distance? Would, would you come intimately with Him today? Oh, how He wants that for you. And I promise you that the pain that you're experiencing is not to be compared to the joy and the grace you will encounter when you come home. So, Father, we just want to come before you today. Lord, this is an intense, this is an intense passage of Scripture. And, Lord, this is an intense sermon. Lord, you, you have broken me, God, and you have so spoken to me. And, and God, I thank you for that. And I, I pray for our dear people here at Great Hills, God, that you would speak to them and you would change their hearts and you would break their hearts and you would draw them into an intimate, close fruit-producing, awesome enjoyment of life. God, you can do it. I know you, were will, you are willing to do it, and I just pray that our people would come and they would respond in obedience to your call. We love you, Lord. We need you. And we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Terry's going to lead us. We invite you to stand to your feet. You may just want to come to this altar. You may want to ask somebody, hey, would you go with me? Would you pray with me? Because, man, God spoke to my heart today. And I, I don't understand everything that guy said, but I understood enough that God loves me. I'm a sinful man. And I wonder if this God would forgive me today. Yes, he will, my friend. Yes, he will. Christians, would you pray with me? And Terry, let's lead, sing out. God bless you as you come.